If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Romans chapter 4. You'll find that on page 941 of your pew Bibles, 941. And as we continue on, uh, if you remember last week, Paul ended the declara- his declaration about justification by faith, asking the question, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. And if you'll remember last week, Caleb talked about the obedience that faith calls forth from us, the obedience that actually fulfills the law by walking in faith. And Paul's also using this little sentence to show that the whole law, the prophets, the Psalms, everything that came before were like giant neon lights pointing to justification by faith. It's not Paul isn't inventing something new. He's not thinking really hard about, all right, Jews tried to be saved by works, have failed time and time again, so I'm going to think God is telling us something different than what he told us. No, he's saying the Old Testament, for all its talk about laws, is always telling us about justification by faith. And he, to continue that argument, he turns to our passage today, to two particular Old Testament saints. So if you would now take your Bibles and turn your attention to Romans chapter 4, we'll be reading verses 1 through 8. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, His faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Thus ends God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Most Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. And we ask now that you would send your spirit Lord, give us eyes to see, give us ears to hear, give us receptive hearts, Lord, that we might um, see and hear and receive Christ as he is preached to us. Father, be with me, be with my words, be with my lips, Father, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's pretty astonishing to think about the many lengths, the many feats that human beings can accomplish. Right, aside from walking on the moon, if you believe in that kind of thing, not really, I'm not, a, not, 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 I'm not one of those guys, um, can walk on the moon, we can cure diseases, we've figured out how to read weather patterns and anticipate when things are coming, we've put satellites into space, we've built equipment that can almost make us harness nature and the power of nature. All these incredible things that we have done, and yet one thing that I have read that is perhaps the most incredible was done by a man named Alex Honnold. Many of, you got, many of y'all may know about Alex Honnold. In 2017, he free climbed El Capitan in Yosemite to a 3,000-foot granite wall, climbed it with no harness, no ropes, no safety net, no parachute, didn't even wear a helmet. So I guess at that height, it doesn't really matter whether you have a helmet or not on. Right? He, he spent a year at the base 
climbing day after day. Every day he would climb the wall. He would practice his holds as he sat in his van. He even talked about how he started dreaming about climbing the wall and being able to climb the wall with his eyes closed. Every day he practiced knowing that in a year or so, the biggest day of his life would come. You can watch it if you would like in, on his, uh, the documentary Free Solo. And after this happened, he was relatively unknown. I mean, the guy lived in a van for a decade, <laughs> relatively unknown. And yet after this documentary, right, his social platform blew up. Everyone wanted to interview Alex Honnold. Everyone wanted to have him on their talk shows. You'll, you'll find YouTube videos with millions of views asking Alex Honnold questions. Even the documentary about him won an Academy, of, an Academy Award. And through an extreme act, a truly extreme and incredible act of human exertion, he found himself at the very top. He found himself at the top of the human food chain. Right? And one reviewer talks about this documentary saying, Free Solo depicts athletic feats that many viewers will find beyond reason and grounds the attempts and passions that are all but universal. Now, we see this, this feat taking place and we're thinking, all right, did he eat paint chips as a kid? What did he do to think this was a good idea? <laughs> right? And yet we watch that and we say, hey, I get it though. Right, I get it. I, I get that urge to do something that no one else has ever done or that few have gone before. Right? You know that desire as well as I do to do something truly incredible. Right? At one point in your life, whether you were a college freshman or a junior in high school, right, you had those dreams of doing the unthinkable whether it was inventing the next marvel of modern medicine, whether it was becoming a professional athlete, perhaps scaling the heights of the earth like Mr. Honold. However we find this desire, we see that it is deeper than just childhood or college dreams. Right? We know that that desire for greatness, that desire to do something truly astonishing, is implanted deeper than just childhood fantasy. Right? It goes beyond the books we read or the movies we watched or the friends we had. In fact, your desire for the fantastic, my desire for the fantastic, is rooted in the desire we have to constantly prove ourselves. Right, it's rooted in that place in our hearts where we say, whatever I do, I am proving that I am worth it. I, I am showing that I am worth something. That I'm valuable. That, really in a word, that I matter. Right, that there's a purpose. I have a purpose it's this insatiable need to prove yourself. Whether before God or those around you or even yourself, myself, 
You and I are passionate about one thing, proving ourselves valuable. Well, Paul, in this letter, and as he argues against first century Judaism, he shows that his fellow brothers, his fellow brothers and sisters in Abraham had fallen trap to just this line of thinking. Right, as Philo, a famous first century Jewish philosopher put it, that no one is justified but through works. So Paul is showing his brothers, his sisters, that they have fallen trapped to the oldest trick in the book, thinking that we have to prove ourselves to God, thinking that we can even prove ourselves to God. And in fact, we see that your average first century Jew would have taken great pride not only in his works, but being a son of Abraham, right? And he would have even included that into his reasoning for being valuable. And we, as, as Paul critiques this line of thinking, we know that Paul is not the only one in the Bible to critique the Jewish people for this line of thinking. We see John the Baptist do just this in Luke 3.8. Jesus himself in John 8 shows that sons of Abraham, if they believe in anything, should believe in Jesus. So you can almost hear this objection, right? These Jews hearing Paul talk about justification by faith. You know, they're sons of Abraham. They're, they, are, they're, they throw up this objection, right? Whoa, 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 what about Abraham? What about, what about old father Abraham? Surely he was a righteous man. If anyone was righteous, Abraham was righteous. You know, he, sacrificed, he, he offered up Isaac. He did everything God asked him to do. Surely he was saved by the things that he did. You can see the logic coming from both the Jews and from Paul, right? Thinking that however Abraham was saved, his people, his children must be saved that same way. So Paul will look first to Abraham, and he'll also turn to David in this passage, and he'll do this to tell us more, to teach us more about this shocking, radical statement that we are justified by faith. Right? He's pulling the argument saying, hey, you're right, justification by faith sounds insane, Right? It sounds counterintuitive to everything you know, and yet we can look back. We can see that Abraham, David, all these men were saved in the same way. So today in our passage, Paul wants to teach us two things about this faith. Right? Two things about justification by faith. The first is that faith is no work at all. Right? Faith is not a work. As hard and as badly as we want it to be, faith is not a work. Secondly, and perhaps more importantly, faith clings to God for our salvation. So faith is not a work. We might say the content of our faith is clinging to God for our salvation. So as our, for our first point, Paul is seeking to underscore in every way he can that faith is not a work. That believing is not something we do to gain salvation. 
So he looks back to old father Abraham. And we see the Jews thinking, as I said, okay, but Abraham must have been justified by works. And Paul quickly fact checks that claim, right? He says, hey, you're right. If Abraham did something that warranted his salvation, you would be right. We are justified by works. He asked them, what shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? Paul returns to that sort of if-then statement that we saw last week, right? If Abraham gained something through his works, then he would surely have something to boast about. It's that, that, that classic desire to go back and see, hey, Abraham found this great reward before God, so surely he did something to deserve it. Right? Surely he did something to deserve that reward. And Paul is telling us that it, you're right. If he had, he, ha, he would have something to, to boast about. However, Paul really examines the original story, right? He says that Abraham would have something to boast about, but then he adds this odd phrase, right? But not before God. If Abraham was saved by works, he would have something to boast about, but not before God. That's the sort of irony that Paul is picking up on in the Genesis text that we read, that the, the Bible, Genesis, doesn't tell us anything about God seeing something worthy in Abraham. Right? The, past, the, the, the story in Genesis doesn't tell us that God looked at Abraham, saw his faith, and thought, hey, that's a guy that I can have follow me, right? That's not what we see. In fact, and Paul goes back and looks at the story and he says, for what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness, right? Paul says that Abraham, he may be able to boast before men to a degree, but scripture shows that his salvation came from something somewhere totally outside himself. If Abraham had something to boast in, then Genesis 15, 6 would have said something along the lines of, Abraham believed and God saw that it was righteous. Right? Abraham believed and therefore God saw that Abraham was righteous. Yet Paul says, he's looking at Genesis and says, that's not what that says. Genesis says nothing about God seeing Abraham as righteous. Right? Genesis says that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Right? It was counted to Abraham as righteousness. And this isn't God winking at Abraham, right, saying, hey, you believed, we know you really didn't do what I asked, but we're just going to make up the difference, right? No, this is something total, coming to Abraham that is totally unequal with the reward that he received, with the faith that he showed. This, is, this isn't Abraham doing all that he could and then God making up the difference, right? This is Abraham trusting God and God bestowing him 
a great reward. Paul is even going to say just a few verses later in Romans 4.10 that Abraham's justification came even before his circumcision. Right? So he didn't even have circumcision to count on to be righteous. This faith that Abraham had was something totally outside the realm of works. Right? This was never something that Abraham did of his own exertion to prove himself before God. And it's, it's hard to even explain, right, that faith is not a work. We're so accustomed in our fallen natures, right, our own selfish desires to have everything contribute to our righteousness. Right, we, we think, I trusted God, therefore he owes me. I read my Bible this morning and the day before that and the day before that, therefore surely I've got to have some some, some chips come in my way soon, right? We are naturally prone to thinking what Paul details in verse 4. He says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as gift, but as due. Right? We think to ourselves that our faith is surely something that gets us to be owed our wages, right? Our owed our reward. But Paul follows up and says, this is how we think about faith. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. His faith is counted as righteousness. And again, I want to underscore the fact that counted as righteous is not God saying, hey, you did all you could in believing I know those commands I gave you are really hard and you can't do that, but you believed. So therefore, I'm going I'm to count that. Right? I'm going to grade you on a curve. That's not what this is saying. This is saying you believed, therefore, God is coming to save you. God is pronouncing you righteous. Faith is not a work. Right? Faith leaves all works behind. And we, say it, we can say it because even Paul in Ephesians 2 will say, the faith that saves is itself a gift from God. It is a gift coming from the Father to us. It is an, a trust, a passive trust in the God who promises a divine and great reward to us. I was walking through uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer's classic, The Cost of Discipleship, with some high school guys the other night. And it's been a, a while since I've read it, but I was struck by this statement. And for all the crazy things Bonhoeffer would say sometimes in his life, he got this thing right, I believe. He says, The only man who has the right to say that he is justified by grace alone, through faith alone, is the man who has left all to follow Jesus. Right, so the only way we can say we're saved by faith alone is to leave everything else behind us. To leave everything and say, if I'm being called righteous, if I'm right before God, it's only because of Jesus. Our faith is not a work, but the rejection of all works. It's the loss of 
any claim within myself to being called righteous. However, Paul wants to make clear, too, that faith is not just trust in a message. Right? We've learned in the days of constant tweets and fake news and everything, we don't just believe a message in and of itself. Right? But faith is trust in the sender of that message. Right? We trust the one who has made the promise. We trust the God of the gospel. Right? And as, we'll, as we see, as, Romans, as Paul will show us at Romans 4.21, that Abraham was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That God was able to do what he had promised. So we come now to our second point about faith, that faith is not a work, but also that faith clings to God as our salvation. It clings to God as our salvation. And Paul begins this line of thought in verse 5 there, which we've already seen, but he says, And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. John Calvin, in his usual clarity, says this is a very important sentence in which he expresses the substance and nature both of faith and righteousness. Right, so this sentence right here is really key to what Paul is getting at about faith. Another commentator says that this line here, that God justifies the ungodly, is kind of like a grenade being thrown into this argument. Right? Paul's saying, hey, you guys want to hear something really wild? Not just that we're justified by faith, but I'm going to let you in a little secret, right? That God only justifies the ungodly. Right? God only justifies the ungodly. And we've seen in chapter 1, right, that Paul has shown the ungodly to be those whom God has revealed all his wrath. Right? God has revealed his wrath against the ungodly. And yet now we see Paul telling us in Romans 4 that God justifies the ungodly. And so now we get a little more clarity on what this faith is about. Right? It's not good people believing good things. It's not one really smart guy who figured everything else out above everyone else. Right? This is the message of sinful people being saved by a gracious God. And justification, right, being called righteous in the eyes of God, is a matter of you and me as sinners. It's a matter of you and me as ungodly, as rebels, as people who hate the things of God. And yet for all our sin, all our evil that lurks within, right, God justifies us. We see Paul now getting at the facet of faith and justification that theologians have also often called the legal or the forensic side of justification. Right? That justification is a declaration coming from God saying you are are righteous. Right, the common example is, it's God the judge sitting 
on his throne declaring you, a sinner, to be righteous. Declaring you to be right in his eyes. So if faith, as I said, is not being a work, is hard for us to understand, this statement here should baffle us. Right? Faith not being a work, that's one thing. But I think we can kind of we can kind of get behind that, that faith isn't something we do. But God justifying the ungodly, right? Nowhere else do we see that. We don't see it in any other religion. We don't see it in nature. We don't even see it in our own hearts, right? The ungodly should never be justified. Yet Paul is telling us that's exactly who receives this grace, is the ungodly. We think about Matthew 9, 12, right, where Jesus says it is not the healthy, not the well who are in need of a doctor, right, but the sick, the poor. Now, we all like to place ourselves on a a godliness scale, right? We always like to think of ourselves, you know, I know I, I know I was really bad at one point, but now as you get older, right, hey, I'm better than, you know, I'm better than my, my brother Johnny. I'm, I'm better than, you know, those new believers coming to Christ, right? I mean, even myself, I get in the habit of thinking, you know, I'm the one with the robe on, right? So surely I'm at least better than some of you guys, right? More godly than some of you guys. We always are prone to that way of thinking, right? That we must be godly and reaching myself higher and higher up. And yet as we walk in this declaration of righteousness, it's never about how far I've come. Right? It's never about trying to get that next degree of righteousness. Instead, walking in this righteousness is always being aware that I'm ungodly. Right? Sure, God, yes, has called me righteous and he is making me righteous But if God walks away for just one second, just for a minute, he turns his back, right? I fall all the way back down. For all my progress, if Jesus turns his back on me, which he says he will never, he never will, right? But if Jesus were to leave me, all my ungodly, all my godliness, all my righteousness would vanish And as we cling to God for our righteousness, right, we also have to beg and plead him for our forgiveness. And Paul sees that in the verses 6 through 8 where he says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Here's David now in Psalm 32. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. So here Paul is telling us, not only does faith, justification, come from a righteous God to an ungodly people, right? but if we want to say justification by works, then it's got to be all or nothing. Right? Justification means it's everything, it's all our works. Right? He counts everything, it's either all or nothing. Right? So, you can be a free climber up El Capitan if you want to, 
right? But if you're going to do that, you've got to understand that you mess up on one hold, right? There's no, there's no redo, right? There's no, hey, had a bad day. I'm going to come back tomorrow and get this thing done, right? If we're going to be justified by our works, then God has to count everything we've done. He's going to count your good deeds, but the bad news is he's also going to count He's going to count your good, needs, good, good deeds, but the bad news is that he's also going to count your bad deeds. So Paul can turn to David in Psalm 32 and show that the, the, the request, the blessing of forgiveness of sins is the proof that we are justified apart from our works. We see the parallel structure, right? We see this in verse 6 where it ends with the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from work. So what is the blessing? How does David speak of the blessing of being counted righteous apart from works? It's by our lawless deeds being forgiven. It's by our sins being covered. It's by God not counting to us our sins. So we've got to understand that if we're going to be justified by works, all our works have to be counted. If God counts one work, he's going to count them all. The only hope we have, Paul is showing us, is that God saves us and he forgives us our sins. As another commentator on this passage says that the ultimate reality, the ultimate reality of justification is not what you think about yourself. It's not what I think about you. It's not what any of the other pastors think or say about you. The ultimate reality is what God declares it to be. Right? The ultimate reality is that God has declared you righteous by your faith. If you know yourself to be ungodly, right, if you woke up this morning with anger in your heart, if you woke up with lustful thoughts in your mind, or you found yourself hating the things of God, right, this passage is great news for you. This passage tells us that God justifies the ungodly. This passage is telling us that though you're in sin, God justifies the ungodly. If you would leave all your works behind you, right, if you left everything that you have, all your vain attempts to show the, to the universe that you are worth something, and you cling to Jesus, right, you cling to him as your only hope for salvation, the one who slayed death, the one who shattered our record of wrong, the one who beckons all men to come. If you cling to him, you'll hear those same words spoken over Abraham. Righteous. Righteous. Sins forgiven. Hearts restored. And no longer this egomaniacal passion to prove your own worth but instead to live as a disciple of Christ, the one who made us, called us righteous. Let's pray.
Most Heavenly Father, we thank you for the astounding news that you justify the ungodly, that you, in your infinite mercy and grace, call us to yourself, not because of things that we have done, not because we believed hard enough or tried hard enough, but because you've loved us and you continue to love us. Father, would you continue to strip our reliance away from works, from the things that we have, from the things that we do, and find our entire, our entire lives, our entire basis for righteousness found in the blood of your Son. Father, we ask all of this in Christ's mighty and matchless name. Amen.